Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to a special episode of FT Politics, a podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and today we're going to be discussing the Supreme Court's landmark ruling on Brexit and the process for triggering Article 50. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the FT's finest judicial minds, Jane Croft, our legal correspondent, and David Allen Green, our legal commentator, to pick through the ruling and what it means. Thank you both for joining. At 9.30am on Tuesday morning, the UK Supreme Court announced that Parliament will have the final say on the process of Britain leaving the EU. Last year, the High Court ruled that primary legislation would be needed before Prime Minister Theresa May could notify the EU of the UK's intention to leave. In a much-discussed and hyped case, the government lost an appeal to the Supreme Court. That court has ruled against the government's final appeal today, 8-3, to three, which means a bill will now have to go through the House of Commons and the Lords before Article 50 can be triggered. So, Draincroft, can you tell us, what did you make of this ruling to a non-legal mind as ever? It seemed pretty comprehensive. Yeah, it was pretty comprehensive. They've basically upheld the High Court decision last year. They've ruled that the Prime Minister must trigger Article 50 and start the exit process from the EU. She must hold a vote of MPs and peers. And Lord Newberger, the President of the Supreme Court, said that UK domestic law would change as a result of the UK ceasing to be party to EU treaties. And so the rights of UK residents would be affected. And that means that has to go through Parliament. The second important thing that was ruled on today was devolution issues. So basically the court ruled that UK ministers were not legally compelled to consult the devolved governments of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland before triggering Article 50. And the court was unanimous on this point. So that was important because if it had to go before the Scottish Parliament, for example, it could have delayed the timetable. Dave Allen Green, there's a lot of people trying to figure out what this means. So can you explain to us what it does and does not mean? We've already seen a return of this talk, the enemies of the people line, which we heard after the High Court judgment, but the Supreme Court meticulously did not say anything about whether Brexit should or should not happen. What the Supreme Court has done is draw a map, a map of where the government has to go to achieve Brexit and a map of where it can't go. The one route which is now closed off to the government is to make the Article 50 notification just by the so-called royal prerogative alone. That route has now been closed. The government can't do that even if it wanted to. It would be unlawful. The route the government has to go down is that it has to have primary legislation. The Supreme Court wasn't terribly prescriptive about what that sort of legislation should be. In one key paragraph, it says, the form such legislation should take is entirely a matter for Parliament. It could be brief. There is no equivalence, the court said, between constitutional importance of a statute and its length and complexity. In other words, it is open to the government to just do a one-clause bill. So that is the route the government has to go down. Another route which the Supreme Court has said the government doesn't need to go down is the devolution route. There's no requirement for it to even consult 
the Northern Irish and Scottish and Welsh devolved governments, let alone obtain their consent. So it's best seen as a map which the Supreme Court has provided for the government to go down in making the Article 50 notification. We'll come back to the devolved point in a moment because it's a fascinating one, but on this map that you see we've now got, we've heard a bit more detail since the ruling this morning that David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, made a statement in the House of Commons and said the government will bring forward a bill, quote-unquote, within days. And he said this will be the simplest possible bill. There's been talk that that bill could mirror the motion that we had last year, which was a non-binding motion, simply saying MPs support the will of the people and activating Article 50. Do you think there's a case they could simply replicate that motion in a bill and that would be enough? It would have to be presented within days because the end of March is within weeks. And so we really have Six no weeks, op- I think. option. And if you cut that down to what days are actually available for Parliament to properly debate and scrutinise the bill, that's going to make it very tight indeed, even with a good wind behind it. The government will be aiming to have a simple one-clause or two-clause bill, almost something you could treat. It would be that short. It would just be giving the government the legal power to make that notification. The Commons have already passed a motion in support of this, and it may well be that the Commons doesn't provide any sort of delay. Some MPs are saying that they want to have various amendments, but ultimately the government has the majority in the Commons, and those who are voting against it haven't got the numbers to delay it much. The question is whether the Lords will. The Lords cannot stop the bill ultimately, but they can delay it theoretically for up to a year. And there's nothing in the referendum result which means that the Lords are obliged to go by the March deadline. The March deadline is self-imposed by Theresa May. There's no democratic mandate for that. So there's no reason why the Lords have to comply with the March deadline and every reason why the Lords might be trying to amend the bill to ensure that the UK stays part of the single market. This is the next constitutional question, Jane, we've got to face. We've just gone from one straight into another, which, as David said, there's been a lot of talk from peers in the House of Lords saying we want to amend Brexit, we don't think it should happen. Baroness Wheatcroft, who's a prominent Conservative peer, for example, has said that. So I suppose the real question now is, does the Lords say we're going to go along with this simple Article 50 bill, not try and amend it and have our say later down the line, or do they choose this moment? And this is obviously taking into account the huge public pressure on Parliament to get on with Brexit in a way. There's a big group of people, the 52%, who are saying we voted last June to leave the EU. Why haven't we started the process yet? Yeah, I think it's a big issue whether or not they will be able to get this one-line bill through the House of Lords. And there's obviously an issue as well about the House of Lords itself and question how much support is there for the House of Lords constituted as it is. So there's a lot of political wrangling to be had, I think, which still could affect the timetable of triggering Article 50 by the end of March. And as David said, it's not an official timetable. This is what Theresa May has set herself. And she's obviously constrained politically, but the referendum was non-binding. So she could trigger Article 50 whenever she wants, but it's only the timetable she's given herself. Yeah, but it's a damage to potentially her political credibility if she doesn't meet this timetable. And she has been very clear that that's what she wants to do. And she's riding high in the party at the moment, I think. Yes, I think in a way the self-imposed March deadline is something which... The opponents of Brexit or those who want to have a so-called soft Brexit will know matters. And so they will be in a position now to almost extort almost anything they want as a concession, as long as the government can beat its chest and say that it's kept this March deadline. So essentially, that's where we are with 
Brexit. Let's just go back to the ruling for a moment. And Jane, the devolution point, which you've both mentioned, is very interesting because one of the potential outcomes of this ruling could have been that Parliament needs to pass primary legislation, but so do the devolved parliaments. And that would have been difficult because there's certainly no majority in Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, to pass it. This Northern Irish Parliament is in a bit of a catastrophe at the moment, and the Welsh Assembly might have been all right. But if it had gone through that, it first of all would have delayed the process, and second of all could have stopped it in definitely because Theresa May could have threatened to call a general election and still not got it through. So the government must be breathing a sigh of relief that there was a unanimous verdict against this in the Supreme Court ruling. Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing was about the Sewell Convention, which governs the relationship between Westminster and the 12 governments. And whether or not that actually could have meant that Article 50 went before Stormont and Holyrood and the Welsh government... So there is a sort of issue about whether or not that could have delayed the timetable. But because the court said that the Sewell Convention is not engaged here, it's a political convention, it has enabled Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish First Minister, to actually say politically that the ruling meant that Scotland would have to choose between independence and quote, increasingly right-wing Westminster government because she feels that Scotland's voice is being ignored in what's been said. Yes, the government can allow itself a bit of a mini fist bump on winning on the devolution points, but that fist bump only racks them all back into a hole. The constitutional issue as to what happens when Westminster goes one way and Scotland and Northern Ireland and perhaps sometimes Wales goes another has not been resolved by this. It's been clarified that Westminster Parliament is sovereign. There's nothing for Scottish or Northern Irish assemblies could do if they wanted to to stop Brexit. That helps the government in the short term, but it creates a potential constitutional problem down the route. Exactly, and I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon, who is the First Minister of Scotland and leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, will try and exploit this. But in some ways, her hand, I think, has almost been overplayed here because she obviously wants to influence the Brexit process for as much as possible. But her options for doing that now are quite limited, aren't they? It limits her in the short term. She no longer has this political hand which people thought she had. Her bluff has been called, she can't veto Brexit. But now she's in the position of being able to say to the Scottish electorate, look, the Sewell Convention being in part of the Scotland, that means nothing legally. It only has very soft power. So in a way, it strengthens the case for Scottish nationalists by showing how weak the provision within the Scotland Act is, which was supposed to protect the Sewell Convention. Yeah, and the Scottish nationalists can point to this as an example of the democratic deficit and the wishes of the Scottish people being ignored. So I think it can give them quite a powerful argument politically to put pressure on the government. We'll see how the opinion polls reflect that over the next few days. Where we're at now, Jane, so we've talked about what needs to happen in Parliament and that's going to fold out over the next few days. Is that it in terms of legal? Is there any way this could go to any European level or anything else? Is this it for the legal challenge to the Article 50 process? For Article 50 in the UK courts, it is the end of the line. But there is a legal challenge coming in Dublin, which has been brought by a tax barrister and other claimants, which is going to look at the revocability of Article 50, which the Supreme Court didn't even look at. So it's going to look at whether or not once invoked Article 50, can it be withdrawn? And that case could actually refer that question to the European Court of Justice, ironically. Other than the Dublin case, which Jane has just mentioned, and perhaps there might be one or two other attempts at bringing litigation, this is effectively it as Brexit as a legalistic issue. It has trespassed into the field of constitutional affairs. It's been fascinating. We've probably got the most significant constitutional judgment for a generation, Now Brexit can go back to being essentially a policy and political matter 
And in the meantime, the Supreme Court has provided a judgment which provides clarity as to the respective powers of Parliament and the executive, and in the longer term has come up with yet another judgment which restrains the executive's discretion. It is, in its way, a judgment which is a great example of liberalism and clarity. So this is a big moment for the Supreme Court in the UK, which is nowhere near as well established as the US Supreme Court and was put together, some say, by a fudge under Tony Blair's government to reshape the role of Lord Chancellor. And this is the second big judgment that it's made. The first one was to do with Julian Assange. But for many people, this is the first time the Supreme Court has entered their consciousness. And in fact, they had to expand the room to fit all the judges in there. So it feels like it's come of age in a way with this ruling. Yeah, Supreme Court is a relatively new invention Previous to this, it had been the law lords that had decided, you know, been the top court of appeal in the UK. The Supreme Court was established in 2009, and as you say, it's had a couple of very big cases, including the one of Julian Assange and whether or not he could be extradited. And they decided that he could be extradited, and that was back in, I think, 2012. So this is another seminal ruling that they've done. And I think it is important. And I think the Supreme Court has come of age. And also it has been very clear. And things like televising the hearings, publishing the judgments online, it's all been very modern. And I think it shows justice in action, really, which has been important. Yes, the Supreme Court has played a blinder in terms of the public understanding of law and transparency. The website has been magnificent. It had links to all the submissions. It published the skeleton arguments. It provided transcripts so promptly after each morning and afternoon session that the transcripts were available before journalists had even finished summarising those sessions. It's provided a very useful court summary, as it does of all cases, which I recommend anybody goes to look at if they can't go through the entire judgment. So as an example of watching the law in action, it's been a wonderful, wonderful exercise. But then there's the underlying question of legitimacy. The Supreme Court has essentially just said no to the government, and it can be seen as having frustrated the referendum result. It hasn't, because the referendum was only ever advisory and not legally binding, but that's not the perception of many people. To be able to say no in those circumstances means you've got to have a great purchase on legitimacy. Otherwise, it's not accepted. And the Supreme Court has been able to do that. So my last question for you, Jane, is how does the UK legal system come out of all this process? Because as David said, there's been a much greater public eye on the Supreme Court and our judges and whatever political impact they may have. But it was quite good today to hear David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, and Elizabeth Truss, the Justice Secretary, throwing their weight behind judicial independence because that has been under scrutiny. But I think generally that our system comes out well out of this ruling. Absolutely. I think it does come out well out of this ruling. And I think the important thing is that our country and the rule of law is incredibly important in Britain and in a democracy and it's incredibly important to see the judges doing their job standing up to the government and that type of thing so yes. On the steps of the Supreme Court after the hearing the Attorney General said the government was disappointed with its defeat in the Supreme Court. That expression of disappointment was the sign of a working constitution. And that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to Jane and David for joining. We'll be back later in the week for our regular episode of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams 
who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 